0: Hoosier fans to another victorious episode of the assembly call as tonight your Indiana Hoosiers defeat the Syracuse Orangemen 74 to 73 to win the national championship banner number five is coming to Bloomington what a night for Indiana just an incredible game Steve Alford put an incredible cap on one of the greatest careers in IU history he hit seven of his 10 three-point shots played all 40 minutes to help lead the way for Indiana as he has done. So often over the last four seasons, but over the final 10 minutes of the second half, it was Keith Smart who just took over for Indiana, turning in one of the best 10-minute stretches in IU basketball history, especially given the stakes, and especially over the final 40 seconds once Indiana went down 73-70 to as he hits the final two baskets to give Indiana the championship. Just an incredible night. And those are just two of the great performances from this incredible victory for Indiana, I am your host, Jared Morris. I'm here with the coach, Brian Tonsoni and Galen Clavio. We are going to break it all down for you on this triumphant edition of the Assembly Call IU Post Game show. And let's start this show the way that we start every show, and that is with our banner moment. And I mean, has any banner moment ever been more obvious? It has to be Key Smart shot, right? What is more of a banner moment than the shot that literally wins a national title game in the final seconds? That has to be it, right? Well, I'm going to zig just a tad, because while the phrase Keith Smart shot is surely going to be repeated for centuries to come, and the replay is going to be shown millions upon millions of times, it's important that we not overlook how incredible Daryl Thomas' contribution was to Smart even having the opportunity to take the shot in the first place. Because when Daryl got the ball with nine seconds left, he could have forced the shot right there. It was probably an opportunity he's dreamed about. He could have pump-faked the hard-charging Derek Coleman, tried to make a play, In other words, Daryl Thomas could have tried to be the hero, but he didn't. Daryl Thomas made the smart and selfless basketball play. In fact, I will venture to say that during Bob Knight's 16-year tenure at IU thus far, it is probably the greatest single play I've ever seen a kid make. He gave up the ball and set the screen that got the man open for the shot that won a national championship, and that is Daryl Thomas. Absolutely unselfish. His attitude and his play on the court are what we will always remember about him now that his IU career is over, that and how really great of a kid he is. What a fitting conclusion to his up and down but ultimately triumphant career as an Indiana Hoosier, so tonight's Banner moment is a shared one. Keith Smart made the shot that will be remembered forever, but it never could have happened without the selflessness and basketball IQ of Daryl Thomas, and that can never be forgotten. All right, our banner moment, as always, brought to you by our friends at Homefield Apparel. And look, I don't know how Connor and his team work their magic, but somehow they already have a shirt up on their website that commemorates Indiana's fifth national championship. It's the IU Champions tee. You can get it right now for 20% off with the promo code ASSEMBLY20. The t-shirt features a contemporary design that is perfectly 80s. It has an all-caps Indiana arcing over a ball, swishing through the net. Appropriately, the ball is swishing through left to right, much like Keith Smart's shot did tonight. Around the net are stars and the years of Indiana's five national championships, 1940, 1953, 1976, 1981, and now 1987. It is a must-own shirt for all Hoosier fans, at least until it's rendered irrelevant when Bob Knight and the Hoosiers inevitably hang their next banner. Go get the IU Champions T right now at homefieldapparel.com. Use the promo code ASSEMBLY20 to get 20% off your entire order. All right. It is time to move the ball, find the open man, and get some opening thoughts from the rest of our team. And we're going to go on location to Brian Tonsoni, who is down at Walter Fountain. Brian, your thoughts on Ooh. this Indiana victory?
1: <laughs> what a night, fellas. Unbelievable. Uh, I just can't believe when that shot went in, diving over to pile at our apartment. Um Grabbing the champagne, the champagne was spraying. Uh, that was even after like an unbelievable halftime show from the girls at Walnut Knolls that that I won't comment about here. But it was a real pick-me-up for the whole crowd. And then uh, I jumped in a convertible. We were driving down uh, J- traffic jam in campus, jumped out of the convertible into Arboretum, sprinting. Uh, I think I kissed a lot of girls. I think I might even kissed a lot of guys. I don't know. But I was just running full steam. This is what, what a great night this was. And w- when I got back here to the studio uh, after getting into the fountain, I did get in the fountain with 4,000 people cheering, singing a fight song. Uh, my friend Brian Toohey uh, called me on the landline uh, and asked, uh, am I wearing the same clothes that I went down there with? No, Brian, this is my fourth change of clothes. People were just exchanging sweatshirts left and right. Uh, unbelievable happiness down here in Bloomington. Uh, after I take a deep breath, I will, I will talk to you about the X's and O's, but right now, what a fantastic scene. Just a lot of love, joy, uh, happiness. We are national championships, third time uh, in Bobby Knight, and it's just unbelievable down here. Back to you guys.
0: Right, Coach, be careful out there. We want to talk to you a little bit more sure. later. I'll uh, catch my breath. All right. <laughs> Over to Galen Clavio. Galen, your thoughts on Indiana's fifth national championship.
2: Well, it's great. I mean, uh, I just I just finished recording this game on on our Zenith VCR uh, recorder. the The, the post game coverage is still happening. I'm actually Jared. Where I'm living right now is going to become of great interest to you in the future. I, I have a uh, a strange feeling, but no, it's uh, look. I will never live
0: in Lafayette. Just that's never going to happen <laughs> ever.
2: <laughs> Just a tremendous game, and we're going to talk about the the details a lot more down the line and and why this game was so tremendous and why it was so challenging for Indiana. But man, I, you know you want to talk about a, a great college basketball game. I know that Brent must about it over and over again, but this one I, I, I feel like in 30 years or so, it's going to be unfairly hidden from the public when we go back and watch great championship games, because this was one of the most even games of basketball I think I've ever watched. And uh, honestly, I think to some degree, I underestimated Syracuse coming in. You know, they, they're not a big name like a Georgetown or a North Carolina or, or, a you know, teams like that that have been at the top of college basketball here lately. Um, but been a really talented team, but I think Indiana showed why they are the Cadillac of college basketball programs in this contest that they were able to to pull it out in a game like this.
0: Absolutely. So look, there's so many elements of this game to break down. I think where we've got to start is the night for Keith smart, because for the first 30 minutes tonight, it was really uneven for Keith. You know, I think he had some opportunities in transition that he was able to, you know, to do some things with, he had a steal and dunk early in the second half. That was really important. Had a couple of other plays, But in the half court, he was really struggling. You know, had an air ball on a three-pointer. His shot selection was questionable. Really looked kind of tentative. You know, they were obviously trying to get the ball inside, but he just wasn't able to get going. And so, you know, Knight puts him on the bench, I think at the 17-minute mark is when he put him on the bench. He comes back in at the 10-minute mark. And Indiana, you know, had given up the lead. They're down six, I believe, when he comes back in. And coach, it looked like a completely different player came back in the game. You know, he was we didn't see any of the long jump shots from Keith. Everything was going towards the basket, which when he has been playing well, that's what he does. He was a cutter, he was a finisher, he was a creator. I mean, I I don't think you could ask for anything more offensively from a guy than what you got from Keith Smart because Steve Alford hits his last three pointer at the 10 minute mark. You know, and he doesn't score again until the layup that, you know, Daryl Thomas, you know, just flung almost falling backwards and, and kind of set him up with. But, I mean, Keith Smart was the catalyst offensively. And it was so great to see a guy respond to sitting on the bench. And it was obviously – there was a good reason why he got put on the bench. But he learned it, realized it, and came out. And that 10-minute stretch was – I mean, he put Indiana on his back offensively. And it was a joy to watch.
1: And and not – just offensively in every facet, he did a nice job of penetrating the box and one, the zone, whatever they were playing at a variety of times. And draw I remember one play, I don't remember the time since there's not running time on on, on the television, but he penetrated from the left side where his shot came, comes later in the game. Jumped in the air, drew Coleman and dumped it down for a, a nice assist uh, to Daryl Thomas. Uh, but he was a lot more aggressive after uh, you go to the bench, and sometimes you get an assistant to talk to you, get the head coach maybe screaming at you a little bit, uh, and, and just get you focused. Uh, that that's got to be a huge you know uh pressure situation everyone reacts to pressure differently and and maybe that was just a time for him to sit and reflect but boy he came out and not only on that offensive end but his rebounds i remember the one-handed rebound that he snatched the rebound on the free throw when he he pushes out to get it back to a, a one point lead there late showed his athleticism and i think what indiana needed was his he was obviously the most athletic player indiana had uh and you needed to attack uh, their their variety of defenses with his aggressiveness, and that message got across in that time, and that, that that's a huge part. His stretch was that 10-minute mark, and other players had stretches at other times to help Indiana win tonight.
0: You know, and, and Galen, I want to get your thoughts on Keith Smart, but also on the other end of the court, it was Dean Garrett, who really stepped up big, and after Syracuse had made their 15-3 to run and gotten up eight, Garrett really shut things down for three or four minutes, blocking shots, getting rebounds. And who would have thought that here in the national championship game, a couple of junior college guys in the crunch time are the ones Bob Knight and in Indiana are leaning on, but they came up huge.
2: Well, it has to be the right junior college guys. I yeah. mean, <laughs> this isn't Courtney witty, you know, no, no offense to Courtney witty, but you know, the, look, if you've looked at IU basketball the last five or six years, what you've seen has been a real lack of the kind of athleticism that Syracuse has on the floor. I mean, Syracuse, it took a little bit of time for them to get rolling in this game, but man, once they blossomed when they got to about the 20 point Mark, they really looked like they were all over the floor. They were causing problems for Indiana on offense. They were causing problems for Indiana on defense. You know, they, to some degree, I feel like they almost underachieved their athletic potential in this contest, because if they had really pressed those advantages, uh, I don't know if Indiana would have been able to keep up. And, you you know what you said about Smart and Garrett being the difference makers out there. That's why they're in the program right now. That's why Bob Knight had to go out and get those guys. That's really the difference between last year's team, which was a three seed and lost to Cleveland State in the first round because oh, they couldn't get the ball in bounds, they couldn't dribble the ball up the floor against a press, uh, and this year's team, which has shown the flexibility and the athleticism. And I think what makes it even more remarkable, the other guy who should have been a big player in this game, but was obviously physically limited, was Ricky Calloway. That's the guy, if, you, if you've if you watched the rest of the games in this tournament, you know his play against LSU, his play against uh, UNLV, his ability to move, his athleticism was a game changer. And with that out of the lineup, it's almost like inconceivable that IU was able to win against the team as athletic as Syracuse without him on the floor, but it was Smart and Garrett that really helped to make it happen.
0: Yeah, you know, and it was nice, you know, to see Ricky at the end of the game look so happy there in, in those final comments. I think he's really poised to have a big senior season uh for Indiana when he comes back. Uh but the other guy that we have to talk about is Steve Alford. You know, I mentioned him off the top and it it's easy to kind of forget about Steve a little bit with what happened over the final 10 minutes only because, you know, he didn't he didn't get a lot of shots over the final 10 minutes. But I thought you know, the stretches where he hit his threes were huge. And maybe, you know, just one of the greatest Steve Alford is a boss moment of his entire career coach was at the end of the first half Indiana's down two he goes over takes that little screen from Hillman drains the three I mean there's just no doubt like you know when when it's going in with Steve like you just know it's no doubter he just puts his head down and runs right into the tunnel it was awesome you know and, and gives Indiana the lead and so you know even though he wasn't able to get going over the final 10 minutes he leads Indiana with the 23 points um you know had you know, some, some good, you know, awareness on defense, got some steals, but you know, he hit some shots at key times when not a lot else was going offensively and kind of got runs going or extended runs and, you know, runs in this game, you know, outside of the one big run Syracuse had, that would be, you know, five points one way, seven points the other way. There weren't a lot of big extended runs. Um, But, but those shots that Steve made were timely as he has done his entire career.
1: Well, he was seven for 10 from the three point line and like you said, he hit them at big, important moments. But the other stat line of Steve's that stands out to me is five assists. And you you saw a lot of – you know, you saw three different defenses, man, boxing one, and a regular 2-3 that Syracuse is, will somewhat be, become known for over the years probably because uh, that's all that Beheim can coach. But, um, the you know, he was – he had to get going and hit shots, and that later on helped um, open up driving lanes – uh, for Smart because, you know, when it's down crunch time and it's 61-56 or it's 52-44, people are going to start really paying attention. They're thinking the only way they're going to get back in this is if Alford gets shots. Well, that matches up when, you know, the benching for Smart came in and Smart came in and started driving those gaps and people got mismatched in that box because if you don't play box and one, you know, 30 games to the year, it's a nice strategy, but it does, it only works for a couple of possessions. There are always uh, weaknesses in that. But he made Because he can hit shots, and he demonstrated in this game 7 out of 10, that really drew attention down the stretch, and Indiana players were well coached enough uh, in order to make plays without Steve Alford. Sometimes a lot of teams, if your main guy gets shut down for a stretch – of eight to ten minutes, the offense just shuts down, and and that's a credit to Coach Knight and the staff and everyone stepping up. And uh, at some point tonight, we need to talk about Joe Hellman's play too, because I thought he steadied. He didn't get uh, any points, but you look at some of his stats; he really did a nice job of steadying the offense and finding the players when they were hot. Um, and that's just a sign of a of a well coached and, and a well and a really good fundamental basketball team. But yeah, offered Alford, offers the reason that Indiana wins. Because he put him in position uh for someone to make shots down the stretch.
0: I mean, Galen, it would take us a whole series of podcasts to try to put Steve's, you know, career into perspective here. As this, you know, is it sinking in this is his last game? The last time we're ever going to see Steve Alford playing in an Indiana uniform. It's kinda it's it's kinda jarring. I mean, at the same time, it's so exciting to win the national championship. It's yeah. strange to think about not seeing another game with Steve in
2: it. Rarely in IU history have there been players that have been So singularly identified with Indiana basketball as Steve Alford has been really for the last four years. I mean, and not just through, you know, being an everyday starter for IU, but also being on the Olympic team after his freshman year. I mean, you know, obviously his entire high school career, you know, it's it is really. That through this whole tournament, you know, it's been in the back of your mind that this is Steve Alford's team in a way that to some degree, I think you could say that IU's previous two national championship teams were more committee. Uh, I mean, you know, yes, you had Kent Benson, but you also had Quinn Buckner and you had... You know, you know Scott May and Bobby Wilkerson on the eighty-one team. Yeah, you had Isaiah Thomas, but you had Landon Turner, you had Randy Whitman. This was yes, all the players on this team were important. All five averaged in double figures, but this was unquestionably Steve Alford's team. And I think something that you said at the outset, Jared, is really fascinating. So Steve Alford's last jump shot occurred with about ten and a half minutes left in this game. That's inconceivable. Yeah. Uh, it just like it's it's crazy to think about that the guy who led IU in scoring at 23 points on the night, uh, didn't take a jump shot for the last quarter of the game, and yeah, he had the layup there, you know, with about six minutes to play, that IU was still able to find a way to win regardless of that. I think it's it highlights how much of a, of a central point that Syracuse put on trying to stop Steve Alford, and that's been the case of Steve Alford's entire career. And yeah. he's finally on a team that – is able to take advantage of situations where Alford is the focal point of the defense. And I think for him, you know, you think about it, if he hits the game-winning shot instead of, of, of Keith Smart, he, he, he hits the game-winning shot that makes him the all-time scoring leader in <laughs> Big Ten history. Uh, that doesn't end up happening, uh, but what ends up happening is he gets a national championship, and I'm sure that matters 100 times more than, than that record would have.
0: Yeah. Memo to young Jim Nance, who does seem like a promising broadcaster, but another number 23 making a final shot. That's not ironic. Indiana winning without Steve Alford taking a jump shot the last 10 minutes. That's <laughs> ironic. Okay. So just just wanted to clear that up there. Um, you know, the other guy that we haven't talked about, I mean, obviously we talked about him in the banner moment, is Daryl Thomas. And Daryl Thomas's contributions tonight go way beyond that one play. You know, it was clearly... Indiana strategy coach to get the ball inside to Daryl Thomas. They were going to try and draw fouls. And and obviously, look, you know, they have confidence in Daryl Thomas and Dean Garrett to score down there. And, you know, that was obviously one of the storylines coming into the game that Syracuse with Ronnie Cycli and, you know, Derek Coleman, my goodness, does that guy project to be a good four year player at Syracuse? You know, but but those two guys were really supposed, you know, supposedly had an advantage. And obviously, from a rebounding perspective, they did because those guys own the glass for most of the night. But, you know, in terms of scoring, Daryl Thomas scores 20 points. Dean Garrett has 10. Uh, and for Syracuse, they, you know, Cycley and Derek Coleman combined for 26. So Thomas and Garrett outscored those guys. And Daryl Thomas, you know, is, is interesting in the first half because it was so much of what we've seen, what we've seen from him his entire career coach, which is when he gets the ball inside and is assertive and goes up quick, he's dynamite. When he hesitates, when he brings the ball down, when he's unsure of himself, bad things happen. And, you know, luckily we saw more of the good Daryl Thomas tonight that was really doing that. And so, you know, while, you know, hopefully that last play that he made getting the the pass to Smart, I hope that goes down as just one of the the greatest plays ever. But that shouldn't overshadow what was really a good 40-minute game for him because he played all 40 minutes, 20.7 boards, and really was a huge part in, you know, Indiana just kind of – you know, keeping it close, not letting Syracuse go on any big runs. You know, he was kind of steady throughout the game. and was really important for Indiana.
1: Yeah, Daryl Thomas going up against Coleman and Cycli is just outmatched. But fundamentally, he's strong. His footwork is great. Uh, when he's aggressive, even when he's shot faking, he doesn't go right away with the shot. But his shot fake and his pivots are fantastic. And he's able to find angles to get to the rim and he does that regardless of the blocks i think Syracuse had seven blocks tonight and their length was huge uh and after he got going i think he got off to a little bit of a tentative start um you know the 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 couple kegs we had here uh were, were kind of getting drained so my memory is uh, um you know starting to falter a little bit but uh you know i you do just like all season long he was he was not that prototypical you know, star player, and yet he had big games and big shots. And tonight he had his stretch, too, where uh, the bog found him and he was able to go to the basket and score and and be a big part of Indiana's win.
0: Galen, your thoughts on Daryl Thomas?
1: Took the most shots for IU tonight,
2: which you wouldn't have thought uh, if you you hadn't looked at the box score, but 8 of 18 on the night, seven rebounds. I mean, just a really important all-around performance. And I think the key... Only two guys played all 40 minutes in this game for either team. One of them was Steve Alford. One of them was Daryl Thomas. And, look, Daryl Thomas is six seven, maybe. He's, but he's a guy that had to play center all last year. He's one of the central characters of a season on the brink, which most of us have read by this point, and not for a particularly good reason. Uh, the, you know, one of the running subplots throughout the whole book is, you know, can Daryl Thomas find his manhood, essentially? And and find a way to manifest it on the floor, and I mean, if you watch how he played all season, he's such an integral part of what IU does across the board. And he, you know, he what he did in this game outsized against both of the post play, really all, all of the post players, not just Cikley and Coleman, but also Brower and also Trish. Uh, you know, it, it just like. It was it was a really difficult matchup moment for Thomas, but he had that all of last season, too. And this is one of those situations where Knight ends up doing something out of necessity that ends up manifesting itself in something great in a key moment. By playing Thomas in those positions throughout the course of an entire season, he allows him to grow into the type of player who can go into a game like this where he is outmatched and be – you know, one of the two most important players, three most important players on the floor for IU throughout the course of the game. And I think that, that you know, you don't get that sort of performance out of Daryl Thomas. IU's not winning this game.
0: Boys, we won the national championship. How good does that feel? <laughs>
2: I mean, just an
0: incredible feeling. You know, and it's interesting. We're kind of on this every five or six years now under Bob Knight. It's like clockwork, you know. Yeah. So let's indulge this as much seems, as possible. But I'm telling so, you, 92 yeah. and 93 are looking pretty promising from right from it's, my vantage point here.
2: And this one, just like 81, this one seemed so far away a couple of years ago. You know, yeah. you missed the NCAA tournament two years ago and and the team seems kind of adrift. You you get back to the NCAA tournament last year and you lose in the first round. You almost lose the Big Ten title uh, you know, going down the stretch this year, and, and it takes Michigan beating Purdue on the last game of the season to, to get a tie for the Big Ten title. I mean, it just, this, one's, this one, I think, is by far the most unlikely of the national titles, which probably makes it all the sweeter. Uh, you know, I mean, IU's been on top for a while now, as you mentioned, and it's, this is what championship programs do, and it's just great to see it manifested in a, in a different
1: way. And coming yeah. down from big against LSU in order to get to the Final Four um, was a remarkable thing for this team as well. Um, but um, yeah, you know, it doesn't stop the beer from flowing down here in Bloomington, gentlemen. <laughs> so it might be time for a break so we can refresh it down is. here at uh, at our apartment.
0: But I mean, but this is why we follow college sports—to watch these guys go through adversity, to watch a guy, to watch guys like Steve Alford, Daryl Thomas grow up over four years, and and you know. Turn from boys into men, you know, kind of before our eyes, watching all their ups and downs, see new guys like Keith Smart and Dean Garrett get injected into the program, give it new life, and, you know, just watch Bob Knight be a master, you know? I mean, it's just, this is what makes being an Indiana fan so rewarding, and obviously this was one of those seasons, just like with 76 and just like with 81, where we got rewarded at the end with hanging another banner, and it always feels just as sweet.
1: Get old and stay old. (laughs) That's right. Nice nice way to win championships. Get, get JUCOs that can fill in the athletic gaps. Yes, yes.
0: All right, coming up, as we continue our breakdown of Indiana's victory over Syracuse, I'm going to point out tonight's meaningful moment that you might have missed, and then we will go inside the numbers to highlight some of the most important statistical notes from this game. You are listening to The Assembly Call. Stick with us.
3: The tobacco industry's menthol targeting is straight up racist. And not that watered down type of racist. What do they call it? Unconscious bias? No, not unconscious. Intentional. I mean that flooding our communities with ads, killing us by the thousands, and laughing all the way to the bank type of racist. They are literally killing us. This ends now at wearenotprofit.org.
4: Sticky notes, email alerts, a string around your finger. They're just not big enough. So here's a big reminder from the California lottery The Mega Millions jackpot is over 250 million. Play now. Please play responsibly. Must be 18 years or older to purchase player find.
1: This is Burdell Jones.
4: What's better than an epic buzzer beater? A full court dribble and a perfectly placed pass to set it all up and, of course, celebrating the Hoosier Nation afterwards. So join Jared,
2: Andy, Ryan, and Coach on the assembly call after every IU basketball game. Go Hoosiers!
0: That's right. I have a feeling that Verdell Jones is going to know a little something about making an important pass in his day. I'm Jared Morris here with coach Brian Tonsoni and Galen Clavio. You are listening to the assembly call and we are talking about Indiana's national championship, national championship game victory over Syracuse tonight in New Orleans, in the Superdome, 74 to 73. Your Indiana Hoosiers are national champions. And guys, let's talk about some of the meaningful moments that might've been missed. And you know, that last, I mean, the last three minutes was such a flurry of activity. I mean, it feels like almost every moment there was easy to miss and yet also really, really important, you know, just in the fog of victory now where there's so much emphasis placed on that last shot by Keith Smart but you know the one play to me among those that really stands out is it was 65-63 Syracuse you know when they're going down if they score it's back to a two possession game and for a little while it kind of felt like that was kind of the tension it's like Syracuse is up 2 can they score to go up 4 can Indiana bring it back and Indiana was never able to get over the hump but they never let Syracuse get out of arms reach either And on this play, when it's 65-63, I don't remember who shot it. I think it might have been Monroe that shot it. Uh, But it was either an air ball or, you know, clanked off on the other side of the rim. And Daryl Thomas is stumbling backwards, corrals a rebound, and I mean, I'm going to have to watch it again because in my memory, like it's just all happening in one motion and he doesn't even look down the court. I don't know how he saw Steve Alford. And so maybe it was a little slower in, in real time, but his presence of mind and court awareness are incredible because he just flings the ball up. And I, I think we're all thinking like, Daryl, what are you doing? <laughs> like, you know, because you don't see where the ball's going and it lands at about half court. Steve ends up getting it going down and scoring. I think there are about four minutes to go at this point. That was Steve's only uh, two pointer of the game. But it was a really important play to again just keep not don't let Syracuse get another offensive rebound and Indiana to go get an easy bucket. Uh it, you know, so Galen, I know uh, you know, we were we were exchanging some messages during the game, and
2: it, it's possible Daryl traveled there. He might have, but that's okay. The beauty, beauty of standard <laughs> definition, uh, you yeah. can't tell. Uh I mean I, I never noticed it until I was watching it tonight, but it does look like he took like, takes like four <laughs> steps with the ball and then Lobs the baseball pass. No, that was a key play, uh, as you mentioned, because it came off of a miss from Indiana on the other end and Syracuse, Syracuse had a lot of pacing issues at key moments in this game, which I'll come back to later, but that was one of those where IU was not afraid to counterpunch when they needed to. Um, what I wanted to bring up in this segment, yeah, this was a weird game of runs. and you know, if you, if you think all the way back to the first half with 430, left in the first half, Syracuse hits a basket and goes up 29 to 24. Mm -hmm. And they had really, for the previous five or six minutes, had been threatening to outrace IU. IU had tried to push the pace a little bit, and Syracuse were just much better suited. IU really clamps down in that last four and a half minutes, outscores Syracuse 10 to five, ends up taking the lead on the Alford three in the corner. Second half, IU gets out a little bit ahead, and then Syracuse swings ahead, fifty-two to forty-four, and it's really looking like danger time for Indiana. And there's this incredible sequence defensively down that whole stretch that leads IU from being down eight to being up by, uh, I think, by two. I think they went up fifty-four to fifty-two. Yeah, Uh, and it was really just it was consistently spurred. There was there was a steal by Daryl Thomas, then there was a steal by Joe Hillman, then. Dean Garrett blocks yes. Ronnie Cycli. Then Cycli throws the ball out of bounds. Then Thomas um, you know, gets it to Smart and he slams it. Then Garrett blocks Coleman. And then Alford hits the three. And then Hillman makes another steal. It was, I mean, like uh, you, you, you hear about that eight-point deficit and the way Indiana comes back. But the way they came back was with defense. And Syracuse poised in a moment. I think that they were up eight and they there was an attempted three that would have put them up 11 yes. that was missed. And that just set off this chain where you saw Indiana's defense kind of fully come to bear on Syracuse, and they almost didn't recover. Like, they, they almost spun out at that point. They did, to their credit. Uh, but, you know, but to me, that's always been the key sequence of, of the entire tournament run for IU, was their ability to clamp down defensively and then chip away offensively until they got the lead back. Also ironic there, you know what
0: What spurred that? What was the beginning of that, that 15-3 run by Syracuse? And then Alford just bricks that three off the side of the backboard. One of the worst shots he's ever taken. And that's where they went down. Garrett got a big rebound. Um, He would score. And then that steal by Hillman at the half court line felt really big in the moment. It's almost like, okay, now we're going down. We're going to get this. and I think we cut it to four after that. I mean, you're right. That stretch of defense was really, really big and kind of set the stage then for what Key smart was able to do once he got back in the game. Coach, what moments really stood out to you?
1: I, I had that one written down because it was a lot of players that weren't the three main scorers in that stretch doing uh, things, rebounding defensively and scoring. But the other thing is the last shot of the half, you mentioned it earlier, how big that was to get momentum for Indiana and, and you can never really uh, halftime momentum is huge. Uh, a two point deficit's not much to come back from and, and it's easy to come back from. But when you hit that shot, there's a little bit of juice going into halftime that sometimes is enough to put you over. But Alford was on the left side and I saw the clock. It said seven seconds left. And he ran down the left side of the lane under the basket. And I'm going to bring Joe Hillman back up. There's this thing that they're going to invent where you share money. And like Jen sent me money to talk about uh, Joe Hillman uh, for some reason. I think, you know, um, she, she likes Joe. So I'm bringing him up over and over again for Jen. Um, But Hillman draws the defense away from the baseline. He takes his defender away, so that gives room for Alford to run the baseline, get to the corner, and then when he flips it back, he automatically goes to screen just in case that defender wanted to come out and and close out, and that's a three. Uh, I think that's – you know, Joe Hillman, to me – is a huge part of this win tonight because of the little things that we've done. We've just mentioned steals by him in that stretch that Galen talked about. Uh, A a nice play to draw the defense and take the defense away from where his shooter is going to go. Those are the kind of players that Knight had, and Knight taught that stuff. And and that was programs with players who understand the game, understand angles, understand spacing, and with a few reminders of the bench and some screaming and yelling, they would go out and they would execute it at big moments, Um, just like the play for Darrell Thomas uh, is huge in getting the ball to Smart at the end for the win. That play right there is three points, uh, and Indiana wins by one. So that was a moment there that – You know, sometimes might get missed is the cut by Alford and the dribble up uh, and screen by Hillman to get those points.
0: Yeah, Joe Hillman, a guy that scored, what, 30 some points a game in high school? Do you think when he came to Indiana that he thought in a national championship game he'd be a big player by scoring none and dishing out six assists? But that's the genius of Bob Knight and his ability to build teams, get guys to play their roles. Galen, the other play that I want to mention again, you know, Keith Smart had so many of them. So you can just kind of make a blanket statement that every Keith Smart play was meaningful. But at about the 120 mark, I think Indiana might have been down by two at this point, or they or they were down four. I don't remember. He gets the ball on the right baseline, and I I, I felt like he jumped from past the block, but I'm sure he didn't. But he goes from the right and finishes on the left, and it, I mean, just you know, through the trees, through Derek Coleman and Ronnie Cycli. I don't know how he got the ball up on the rim, but he did. I mean, by that point in the game, he was playing with so much confidence it was so amazing to see just like when he went down at 73 to 70 and you just know he's going to go down and make that little jumper in the middle of the lane I mean he was just locked in in the zone but
2: that finish just as an individual play was one of the more athletic plays that I've seen when you only have four guys that score for your team and Steve Alford is not one of them for the last 10 minutes it essentially was the the Keith Smart and Daryl Thomas show down the stretch and. You know, there were a couple of moments there. IU was down fifty nine fifty four. They were down sixty one fifty six. That whole run was Keith Smart or Daryl Thomas, largely the two of them working together, uh, bringing Indiana back. And you know, the the I, I'll, I'll tell you this: the shots that Keith Smart was taking under normal circumstances, I'd be like, I don't know, that's a good idea. Like, I mean, he's he's contorting his body. These are not traditional Indiana shots that we're used to seeing but his athleticism was generating almost invisible angles to get shots up and go to the basket, and that was necessary because you've got a 7-footer on one block, you got a 6'10 guy on the other block. Uh, it was incredibly difficult to score against the athleticism of, of Syracuse, and, I mean, thank goodness, because you know, he was opening passing lanes for people and he was not afraid to shoot. And I think that's the big difference in this game for Keith Smart. We didn't see it in the UNLV game nearly as much. Uh, his willingness to put the ball up, it was like he was possessed over that last eight minutes of the game. It really was. And and it was absolutely needed because I don't know where the scoring would have come from. Not just that, but I don't know where the passing would have necessarily come from with those angles. Yes, Joe Hillman had six assists. Yes, Alford had five, but smart's assists down the stretch were the ones that won the basketball game. Yep. Coach, you have one? I,
1: I just got a call on the landline again. Um, you know, from Libby. You got this, call this, waiting, Brian? <laughs> yeah, this this uh, lady called Libby, who's just the nicest lady down there in Bloomington. And she said something that <clears throat> no one was on the free throw line for Syracuse at the 30-second mark. And that ball kind of came back a little bit. If there was someone there, that could have changed, um, you know. And, and a couple of those free throw rebounds were really, really contested. And then all of a sudden, Syracuse pulls them off with 30 seconds, probably to avoid going over the back. Um, a strategy. You don't want your guys going over the back, but that's an interesting thing. And thanks, Libby, for the phone call. I appreciate it.
2: I, I want to mention this, uh, and I don't want to pick on him because I know it's his first national championship game and all that, but there were some questionable coaching decisions by Jim Boeheim down the stretch in this one. You know, He burns all of his timeouts. He burns his second to last timeout with a minute and 40 to play. They're up two. They've got a full shot clock. And they come out of the timeout and they immediately run a quick play, miss the shot, Smart grabs it, goes down, hits a layup, and ties the basketball game. You know, as you mentioned, they they don't have anybody on the free throw line. despite having a guy that you know I mean, I, granted the guy that had nineteen rebounds is on the line, but you've got Ronnie Cycley, you've got Derek Brower that you could throw in there, nobody on the line. Um, it just like, and then of course, obviously the end of the game where there's no timeout called despite the ball going through the net with four seconds left. Like there's a lot of stuff left on the table for the Syracuse team, as much as they did good throughout the course of the contest. And as many times as they look like they could break open, uh, you, you gotta feel like maybe Bayheim, makes a couple of different decisions. They end up the winner in this one,
0: which is interesting, you know, cause you listen to Brent Musburger and Billy Packer talk. And it sounded like for 37 minutes, Jim Bayham had Bob Knight on ice skates. Huh. Interesting how Bob Knight I, I still do, ended up winning I there. No, I
2: want to note something as much as they <laughs> talked about uh, how Syracuse's substitutions were uh, an advantage in keeping IU off base. I'd like to note that um, Syracuse's starters played 39, 37, 34, 32 and 32 minutes in this game. Uh, IU got more contributions in terms of minutes out of Joe Hillman and Steve Isle than Syracuse got out of Thompson or Brower and IU ended up playing two additional players. Uh, than Syracuse did in this contest yeah it was it was a weird this is one of those situations where broadcasters have a tendency to pick up on a narrative and then just decide to continue to hammer it home in you know despite the evidence mounting to the contrary this was definitely one of those moments yeah I'm pretty sure Billy Packer
0: was just straight up rooting for Syracuse because at one point they got an and one inside and he's yelling great dish great dish and I thought he was going to storm the court he was so excited so really really happy that we won for many reasons Glad we shut them up. That's for sure. Um, Guys, let's talk about numbers. You know, look, I think the the biggest number that people are going to zero in on in a one-point victory, especially since they missed those two down the stretch, is Syracuse going 11 of 20 from the free throw line. But this is a team that has struggled from the free throw line. So it's not like that's abnormal. You know, what was a little abnormal was Indiana only going 7 of 12 from the free throw line. Steve, of course, did not shoot a free throw after shooting a ton of them uh, against UNLV. Uh, So both teams obviously left something there at the free throw line. And then Indiana is able, you know, in a game where both teams took about the same amount of three-pointers. Indiana takes 11. Syracuse takes 10. Steve's the difference because he made seven of them, (laughs) and he took 10 of them. You know, and for Syracuse, they spread it around. Well, they only had two guys take them, Douglas and Greg Monroe, but Greg Monroe goes two for eight. Um, You know, so those two numbers, just those shooting numbers, look, you know, coach, we've talked a lot on this show about how, you know, there can be a difference between playing well and shooting well, but a lot of times games come down to who make, who who makes shots and who misses shots. And for everything that we talk about, you know, Steve Alford made some of those shots. They missed some of those free throws. That was a big difference in this ball game. What other numbers jump out to you?
1: Well, I I think it's, Awesome that we won when we got out rebounded, and with the two bigs from Syracuse yeah. that in and, and nineteen for Coleman, uh, that Indiana uh, was able to overcome that difference. Uh, it was interesting; both teams were forty eight point three and forty eight point four percent. So it was just one more field goal by Indiana overall, uh, and the difference at the three point line. And, and you're absolutely right. You know, very there's a lot that goes into winning basketball games, but this one was really even in the runs back and forth that you really can say, thank goodness we had Steve Alford and and he got 11 or 10 shots and hit seven from three, uh, because you know, they were 40% from three that that's not horrible, but we just had, we just had one point, um, more on the scoreboard, uh, files were 17 to 16. There's not a whole lot of statistical difference. Uh, it was just who had the ball, you know, last and, and, um, you know who who had the better coach and and players, and and I think it was one point better. You know well, and the coach was a lot better, but
0: yeah. <laughs> and and the other part of that, Galen, too. When you talk about the shooting, Indiana had twenty assists on thirty made field goals. You know, and sometimes that's, you know, because guys are making shots and obviously that was part of it. But I thought Indiana's creators, you know, Coach, you talked about, you know, some of the smart moves Joe Hillman would make to, you know, create angles and create shots for guys. So I think that assist number is important because it created opportunities for makes and for good looks. And, you know, while Indiana's offense at times in the first half and at the beginning of the second half got a little, just a little bit disjointed there. Boy, there were some stretches where it was just really looking looking pretty. And and typically this is an offense that's going to generate assists when it's going well.
2: I think one of the, the prescient things that the broadcast team did identify in this game was how disrupted Indiana's offense was against the Syracuse team. They had to be. They they you know, if you watch closely, Bob Knight's making a lot of really clever. And almost incon- like undetectable changes in the way that he's doing things, in the way that he's setting people up, in who he's playing and when. You know, when Ricky Calloway in the first half is obviously having issues, Knight could have gone to Joe Hillman right there; would have made a lot of sense. Joe Hillman's played in the tournament before; he played in the UNLV game, he played in the LSU game. He doesn't. He goes with Steve Isle, and Steve Isle plays thirteen minutes; doesn't play very much in the second half at all. And you know that was. In my opinion, that was Knight trying to set up the chessboard for the second half because you could could tell early on that, look, if I show my entire hand early, what's going to end up happening is Syracuse is going to adapt. And that's essentially what happened. Like they get to about the 12-minute mark, and Joe Hillman plays almost the entire rest of the game at that point. Then Ricky Calloway doesn't see the floor. Steve Isle doesn't see the floor. And what that leads to is Knight making a concerted effort to consolidate his scoring around essentially three types of plays he's trying to consolidate around Steve Alford coming off screens and getting open shots. Although a lot of it's funny as much as Alford's, you know, the, the graphic that they had and everything showing where Alford's going to score. Most of Alford's threes didn't come off of motion. They came out of transition yep. and, and you know, so much of the pushing the pace despite Billy Packer thinking it was a bad idea was essentially a way for them to get Sherman Douglas Or whoever was guarding Alford off of him, and so that he could move in space, get his feet set, and have open shots. And Billy
0: Packer learned a lot from that final four game, clearly.
2: Well, (laughs) and look, I think Syracuse deserves a lot of credit because Syracuse figured out, look, we can't let Indiana run in transition, which is like bizarro world if you think about the way that these teams normally play. Um, But that's entirely what happened in that last 10 minutes. And so, um, you know, the other number that really stands out to me, I think, is you know as as good as Syracuse played and yes as, as coach points out they did out rebound Indiana but the the rebound margin wasn't as bad as you would think given that Syracuse had a guy that pulled down 19 rebounds and another guy that pulled down 10 that i mean they only out rebounded Indiana by 7 for for the whole game and to me that illustrated how Indiana's change in the way that they were approaching things ended up helping and you know what i think is interesting if you look at that final play where Keith Smart hits the shot and you hit the freeze frame button on your VCR right when the shot's about to go in, you'll notice that Indiana has the lane essentially bracketed. I think even if Smart misses that shot, they've got an excellent chance to get a rebound there. And, you know, it, like, to me, it's as, as overwhelming as those numbers seem what it didn't tell the whole story because Indiana really was able to take advantage in the paint a lot more than you might've thought from looking at
1: the numbers at first. Yeah. You, you know, Galen brings up something really good about coach setting up the second half. And when Hillman came in, it allowed smart to be on a wing and offered to be on a wing kind of, they're all moving, but yeah. that opened up when he got back in, smart was able to slash then and give them an inside and outside and a slash where smart was bringing the ball up most of the, most of the first half without and when Hillman come in and you look back at all of Indiana's championships, 76 had to overcome Wilkerson and you had some backup guys and the first half was a little sluggish and then, then night figured out, okay, who is playing well in reserve. Let's put him in the second half and let's move this player here Uh, in the 81 championship, did the same thing and had, you know, uh, Whitman bringing the ball up um, and, and put uh, Isaiah in the middle uh, against that zone and did some things. And I, I think that shows, uh, you know, Galen's point is how well coached this team is. And that's how you win three championships in a small amount of time, so to speak, Um, you know, in 11 years, because you have a coach who understands how to use players and how to get players ready for, for the big time and trust them and then have it happen.
0: Guys, before we go to the next segment, I want to go back to meaningful moments real quick. And this is actually not something that happened during the game, but that happened after it. Did you guys stick around all the way past the interviews? There was like this this vignette of highlights at the end of the game with some music. And this there's, there's really like awesome song it was called one shining moment began with Dwayne Shinsis from Florida kind of like running out onto the court and they put all the highlights and the greatest moments together they even had the Indiana highlights there at the end so I'm guessing you know they just kind of had to wait and like there was this piano music and it got real dramatic leading into it I don't know if they're going to do this every year but that was amazing. That was one shining moment. I think is what it was called. That was incredible. So cool. I know you're into the, the sports media and broadcasting stuff, Galen. So that was I, that was pretty cool.
2: I mean, and without any fanfare, like they didn't say, yeah, hey, yeah. "Stick around at the end." Of there was the no way to know it was coming. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, I honestly, I was getting ready to turn over to a different <laughs> channel, and then I'm like, "Well, wait. They've got this graphic, and then there's this music playing, and then that happened, and it was really neat." I mean, I, I, yeah. It's fun because you know, we don't get to see very many tournament games. They're not all on television. We just see generally like a couple on each weekend and that's it. And I never got a chance to watch Florida play. I never got a chance to see the Iowa games because they were in the West regional. So it was cool just seeing little snippets and highlights of those. You almost got a sense like it, it helped to encapsulate what had happened in the tournament that year. I, it's, it's a, I like the change.
0: Yeah. I, Coach, I know you, you
1: definitely, did I, I'm going to have to go back and look <laughs> at it. Cause you know, I was, I was hugging and kissing, man, hugging and kissing. That's uh so I'll miss that, but I'll, I'll, I'll go back and see if I can find it.
0: Yeah, that was the, you know what there may, if they keep doing it for 30 years, there may never be a, a better one than this 1987 one. This might be the best one shining moment of them all. Really, really good job with it. All right. Coming up on the Assembly Call, we are going to hand out our game balls for this Indiana victory. Then we are going to talk about what age is the best, what age is the worst from this game, and then we'll try to put it all into proper historical perspective. That is next here on the Assembly Call. Stick with
3: us. The tobacco industry's menthol targeting is straight up racist. And not that watered down type of racist. What do they call it? Unconscious bias? No, not unconscious. Intentional. I mean that flooding our communities with ads, killing us by the thousands, and laughing all the way to the bank type of racist. They are literally killing us. This ends now at wearenotprofit.org.
4: Sticky notes, email alerts a string around your finger they're just not big enough so here's a big reminder from the california lottery the mega millions jackpot is over 250 million play now please play responsibly must be 18 years or older to purchase player five
0: this is jordan halls and i never miss a shot or an episode of the assembly call Thank you, Jordan. You are listening to the Assembly Call IU Post Game Show. Catch us live immediately following every IU basketball game plus every Thursday night at our website, assemblycall.com. While you're there, make sure that you sign up for our free IU Hoops email newsletter. Over 7,000 of your fellow IU fans have subscribed. Uh, You are going to get a weekly IU News Roundup, plus emails after every single uh, IU game, including these rewatches. We're doing post-game emails for the rewatches. Uh, Cam and Dylan are doing a great job with that. So, uh, Go to assemblycall.com or text IU to 66866 to subscribe to the newsletter. That's IU to 66866. All right, I'm Jared Morris, here with the coach Brian Tonsoni and Galen Clavio. We are breaking down Indiana's national championship game victory over Syracuse. Your Hoosiers, their fifth banner the first, uh, you know, I mean, Bob Knight, four, five, six, like how many is he going to have? I mean, I guess if he just coaches for another 32 years, that's three more, right? At the rate of three, every 16 years. So the good times are just going to keep on rolling. Uh, before we talk about that, it's time for the game balls. Uh, coach, who gets your game ball for this Indiana victory? you going to go Man. with Joe Hillman. you going to no. give it to, I know you want to
1: <laughs> Jen just sent me another $10 to do it, but, um, I'm going to have to refund Jen, um, that money, but, um, you know, there's three players that really deserve it to some extent cuz each one had their their run. Um I think I'm going to start off with Keith Smart cuz he hit the shot and he had the run the last 10 minutes to really push Indiana um back from a deficit and and finish the game and, and I think that that gets my game ball but we're not there without the other other two guys. So, you know, I think that this could be, you know, a situation for a tie or, or a chat mob decision or something like that. But I, I I'm gonna start it off with Keith Smart.
0: Yeah, I mean, Galen, there are so many different different ways that you could argue this, but I think ultimately it goes to Smart for what he did down the stretch. Like he he probably didn't have the best game wire to wire, but my goodness, the impact of those final ten minutes was just unbelievable. And Indiana is not within five or six points at the end of the game without what he did. Like you did like you said, taking some shots that you're like Are these good shots? Well, Keith's in the zone, so just let him go. And he was just, he was incredible. So I hope, again, I want to highlight this. I I hope Daryl Thomas gets the credit he deserves for the final play. I have a feeling if we hear Bob Knight talk about it, he's going to love that play and find it very meaningful. And so I want to give an honorable mention to Daryl Thomas, but I think the game ball's got to go to Keith Smart.
2: When you hit a shot to win a national championship, you get the game ball. I mean, Chris Smith could have come in off the bench and hit the game winning shot and scored two points for the game. He would have gotten my game ball. Um, I do agree with you about Thomas and and the the role he played. Look, but I mean, Alford deserves a lot of credit leading scorer in the game. Kept Indiana in the game for the entire middle 25 to 30 minutes with his threes and, and just with the defensive attention that he drew away from everybody else uh, this was one of those games where you couldn't have taken any of the four guys that scored for IU out uh, or had them play any less uh, of a game than they played and have IU win like it's just it, it's one of those where it's like a really like, like like a band at their apex like if you take any one member out it's yeah. just not going to be the same and that was essentially this game it was just it was such a team effort and, and, yeah, Keith Smart hit the shot. Uh, Daryl Thomas played really well down the stretch. Steve Alford kept them in. Uh, but any of those guys, and I throw Dean Garrett into this, who even though he only scored 10 points, was was so crucial keeping De- Ronnie Cycli from from going nuts for the entire game and pulling down 10 rebounds, the only rebounder in double figures for IU uh, over the course of the game. Yeah. Um, you know, just you got to give it to Smart because that would be moronic if you didn't. But at the same time, All of these guys really deserve a big round of applause for the way that they played.
0: Yeah, and as we now transition into modern day uh, 2020 and start looking back, I highly recommend. Yes, I highly recommend if you haven't if you haven't listened to it. You know, the Hoosier Hysterics interview with Keith Smart is fantastic, and I I finally got a chance to go back and listen to it in preparation for this game. And what I found most interesting is he was telling the story of how he ended up at Indiana, you know, from a junior college, and that that entire story is fascinating. But, you know, he gets down to basically, you know, he really wanted to go to NC State. He really liked NC State. He was thinking about Kansas because I think the junior college that he went to was in Kansas, if I recall correctly. Um, But he came on a visit to Indiana, you you know, not really knowing what to think. And he talked about the first time he walked into Assembly Hall and saw the four banners hanging there, how much of an impact that made on him and how that was really the turning point in his recruitment, you know, that he wanted to go to a place where you could win national championships and play for national championships. And, and obviously he, you know, just in, in the interaction that he had with Bob Knight, believed that, you know, believed in him, had a good relationship with Joby Wright. And, you know, so for that to be the reason why he chose Indiana, and then in his first season to make the shot that hangs banner number five, that's just incredible. It's an incredible story. Those, you know, those little stories are such the fabric of Indiana basketball. You know, and you know as we say often, kudos to the Hoosier Hysterics guys for pulling those out so we can all hear them. But if listening to this show has been interesting and you haven't gone back and listened to that interview with Keith Smart, I'm t- you'll, you'll get chills listening to him tell the story of how he ended up at IU. Both thinking about man, imagine if he had gone somewhere else. And then the reason why he came, and then understanding what happened that first season—it's an incredible, incredible story. It really is. Um, do you want? Do you want to talk about that, Galen?
2: Well, I think just in general, Smart's a really interesting story in the history of IU basketball. I mean, it's a guy who—I remember there, there was a quote in when in Bob Knight's book where you know he he said that he's Knight essentially spent the entire next year wishing that someone else had hit the game-winning shot because he kind of felt like it kept. Keith Smart from hitting his natural potential uh, in his last year at IU, which is an interesting perspective, very Bob Knight sort of perspective. Um, (laughs) The power of negative thinking. Well, you know, I think it's more than that. It's like I think he looked at Keith Smart and said, this guy's got unlimited athletic potential. And, you know, it's it's one of those things where you you hit a game-winning shot that wins a national championship your junior year, like what more? What other mountain are you going to scale? Particularly on a team where you know you're going to be playing a more central role, you're not going to have a, a Steve Alford uh, or a Daryl Thomas drawing so much attention away from you. Yeah. You know, but that said, he had a uh, you know a perfectly reasonable professional career as a player. He had you know a, a very long career as a coach at the NBA level, both in his assistant as a head coach, and you know I think he he's one of those guys that you're you're just tremendously pleased that he's part of the IU basketball family. Uh, yes. And, and as we mentioned earlier on, not a guy you would have thought, I mean, in, in Alford's book, and I think also in the the epilogue that got written at the end of this 87 season for season on the brink, um, you know, they talk about how smart looked like a guy who never would have been recruited by Indiana prior to this year, you know, he came in with gold chains and, in know, flat top haircut and just did not look the part of an Indiana player. But when you talk to him, oh, it's a normal guy. And, and a lot of this particular performance and Keith Smart's role in IU basketball history was almost to some degree breaking down the stereotype of the IU basketball player. And I think helping Knight and helping some IU fans, maybe not all of them, realize that the, the the archetype of the IU basketball player doesn't have to look like Steve Alford, uh, you know, and and doesn't have to have the background of Steve Alford. You know, they mention in I, I don't know if it's this game or in, I think it might have been the UNLV game, how you know Keith Smart after high school was was you know flipping burgers at McDonald's and Baton Rouge, uh, as opposed to playing college basketball. And he had to really build himself up. It's a real rags to riches story in a lot of ways. Yeah, yes. And, you know, it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. It couldn't have happened to a more deserving guy to be able to hit a game-winning shot and essentially, you know, your backyard where you grew up. I mean, yes, you grew up up the road, but, you know, to be able to do that on a team that probably would have never considered you five years earlier. I think it's a really fascinating story and it's one of those subplots of IU basketball that makes it such a fascinating thing to be a part of.
0: When you actually hear his story, it could be a movie. Like, Angelo Pizzo could write this movie and it would be, it would be a great movie because there's so many... Like, little coincidence, you're like, all right, that can't really be true, you know? Like, I think the first time he met Knight was when, I think he said he had just gotten, like, a his number shaved into the back of his head, <laughs> you know? Just like, not, and I think Coach Knight looked at his coach and said, do you let your players dress like that? <laughs> so, you know, it was just so, so, you know, such an unlikely story. But I'll tell you, Coach, you know, we start talking about things that age the best from this game. Like, within the first minute of the game, watching it, the first thing that jumped out is, My God, Keith Keith Smart's athleticism is incredible because he's not a tall guy. He's, what, 6'2", 6'3", but his arms are so long, and he's got these long legs and takes long strides and is quick. So the amount of ground that he can cover defensively, offensively with his dribble is incredible, and it's functional movement. I mean, he needed to be able to take those big bounding steps to get away from Trish on that last play, so he had the space to take that shot. I mean, his... You know, as athleticism over those final 10 minutes when he could harness it. I mean, like who he is on the short list of the best athletes that have ever played basketball at Indiana. And, you know, whatever the shortest of short lists is, I mean, he might be at the top. I mean, I don't want to, I need to think about it a little bit more, but just pure athleticism. I mean, that guy, unbelievable.
1: Yeah, And you saw it, you know, when Galen was talking about some of the shots he took, you're kind of like, oh, well, he made him because he was athletic. You know, he jumped in the air and he would spin by someone or he'd take off on one side and lean through the other. So absolutely correct. And I think that was what was needed on on this team because – you know, I think I don't necessarily not a big Billy Packer fan, but I thought he mentioned that as well about the athleticism of the two junior college guys. Well, Billy I Packer that,
0: just referred to him as the athlete, which was a little. Yeah.
1: You know. um, but yeah, that you, you look at that and that still plays today. I mean, his game, a lot of times, you know, you're 35 years away from from the game and the, and those guys can't play. Uh, in today's game, well, Alford shooting could play, we'd find a spot for him. Uh but really the athleticism what we see today, uh Keith Smart had that for for his time. Um you know, and uh yeah, that 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 played and aged well.
0: What age the best for you, Galen?
1: I mean, I would say uh, it's a
2: couple of things. First of all, just the the way that There's this scene in Godfather 2. Where you know Tom Hagen is is talking with Pentangeli, uh, you know he's he's in like he's like waiting to testify or they just testified and uh, he makes some comment about how you know the Corleone family used to be the Roman Empire you know it was a Roman Empire and I kind of feel that way about this game it's like this was like the last like true expression of like unfettered greatness that IU basketball really was able to put on display on a national level. And it just shows in all of the little things, Uh, as, as coach mentioned on more than one occasion, the way that this team reacted both offensively and defensively throughout the course of the game, you know, the fact they were able to step outside of the shadow of being IU basketball and play a very different type of game against the type of opponent, both in conference and out of conference, that had given them fits over the course of the last six or seven years because of their athleticism, uh, and and because of of you know the, the sorts of things that Bob Knight had kind of stopped incorporating into his program. You know, Knight, I, I've always felt that after Knight won the second national championship, he's like almost like this is too easy. I need to do this with one hand tied behind my back, and and that one hand ended up being I don't really want to recruit players. That I have to like go out of my way to to kowtow to I don't I don't necessarily want the greatest athletes because I almost want to demonstrate that I can do it you know and win games and win championships against teams that have those players when I don't the the junior college players were kind of a tacit admission that this wasn't uh, entirely possible and to watch night kind of bending his system, and to watch IU basketball, you know, morph a little bit into something different, something that was able to compete at that highest level, that ages really well to me. Like, I go back, and I've, I've, I've probably watched this game more than I've watched any other sporting event in my lifetime. Uh, I've, I've probably watched this tape. the the same tape that got transferred onto YouTube. I've probably watched it a hundred times. I used to just throw it on uh, and just watch the thing straight through, like on a random weekday, uh, you know, in my teens or in my 20s, which is weird behavior. Don't get me wrong. But I, we, I didn't even need to watch the
0: celebrated game. behavior on this show and totally. Which absolutely.
2: Normal. You know, but, you know, all the all the ways that IU manifest itself in this game, the way that Alford finds his shot, just the, the purity of that, uh, you know, the way that smarts athleticism just kind of fits seamlessly. in. it's like, oh, this could have been the case all the way along. Uh, the way that Dean Garrett's athleticism, which we haven't talked about as much, just kind of fits yeah. seamlessly in. It's like, well, this is another guy who IU has not had in the past five years. All of that ages well. Uh, the the tenor of the game as a whole, I, you know, I, I mentioned this off the top, how evenly played this game was and how well this game was played. It's just such a tremendous college basketball game to watch. Uh, and it's and as, as coach mentioned, the statistics are incredibly even. You know, one team hits more free throws, one team has more rebounds, one team hits more threes, but, but they shoot almost the exact same percentage from the floor. Um, it, is, it is such a seesaw battle throughout the course of the contest uh, as an entertainment item even if I wasn't an IU fan, if I was a real fan of college basketball, this would be a game I would go back and watch regularly. And I think that's probably age the best of everything.
1: And Galen, you know, what's interesting too, is, as you watch it over and over again, you find out those close miss shots or those block shots or those missed free throws. You're like, you know, it's a one point game, like, man, that's going to come back, uh, to haunt Syracuse or, or man, Indiana could have stretched it out there if they would have made that that because in a one point game, almost every possession matters and you can go back and play this over those hundred times and find something new to to just be fascinated with that it it turned out that way, which then ultimately led to this happening, this happening and the final score. Um, you know, and you're kind of like an IU fan, like, oh my gosh, we won that thing despite so many nuances that could go um, multiple ways. No,
2: you're, you're 100% right. And I think the thing I've learned over time is I've learned more about basketball, as I've learned more about, you know, because, well, you know, when you grow up as an Indiana fan, it, you're, everything's through crimson-colored glasses. And you, you, your entire perspective on the basketball world is based upon what IU did, uh, particularly in this era, when is what IU did under Bob Knight. And this was a, a, a perch that you could easily sit on during this era, because you know this was IU's third national championship in eleven years, it was you know they they were in this run of Big Ten titles where they just owned the the seventies and owned the eighties and owned the early nineties. But if you broaden it out a little bit and you go back and watch the game, I mean, I, I, Syracuse deserves a lot more credit than I gave them at first, and really, than more credit than I gave them for many years afterwards. When you go back and watch especially now as a 40-year-old, I'm like, man, I don't know how IU won this game. I really don't. Like yeah. the, the, the athletic advantages that Syracuse had could have overwhelmed Indiana in this game and, and Knight and the players. It's not just a Knight thing. Knight and the players figured out a way to make this work, and it took the shots that I was talking about with Keith Smart or it took Daryl Thomas out of pure positioning. Figuring out ways to outmaneuver these two guys who were future NBA, not just NBA players, but NBA stars. Um, you know, it's it is fascinating. Every time I watch it, there's a new layer that I uncover, and and that's that's really it's cool that we have a game like that in our uh, in our archives that we can go back and watch. Yes, it and
1: is. Y- and real quick, Galen, because we're all wrapped up in the social media stuff too, I always wonder what Knights teams and these championship teams would have gone through in the era of social media where today if Indiana is you know down four or five, doesn't play well in the first four minutes by the first time out, the Twitter is going nuts with Fire Archie and this kid can't play and it's four minutes in. And almost every one of these games, the first half was not very pretty. This one was a little bit more... Then the other 81 and 76, there were some struggles. And even in some of the earlier games that we saw, there were some struggles at periods yeah. of time. And you wonder what social media would have been like if they, you know.
0: Probably would I have been I more remember. trust.
2: I think it would. Yeah,
1: yeah, I was going to say that because I never for a long time growing up and when I was in college and soon after did I feel Indiana was ever going to lose a game. Right. You always well, thought, okay, like when I was a
0: kid, nine. I legitimately thought when Indiana lost games that Bob Knight wanted them to lose to prove a point. And I don't remember at what age I was disabused of this notion. Probably after 93, I would imagine. But I legitimately kind of thought that growing up. That like, you know, if Indiana lost, you know, Coach Knight must have wanted it to happen. You know?
2: I mean, th- you know, th- th- I... <laughs> Championship games, I think, get treated differently. I think the problem is when you're when you're having an off night on a random February uh, <laughs> yeah. against Minnesota, that's going to engender a lot more negativity on social media. Um, you know True. but but again, it's just one of those deals where it was a different era, and this was the middle of the era. It was slightly afterwards, I guess it was maybe on the opposite side of the of the peak, but this was at a time when you looked at IU basketball the way you, you would look at Duke basketball now, or the way you would look at Villanova basketball now, Where it's just like, there's no need. You're not having the infighting. You're not having, there wasn't this split in, you know, IU fans that liked Bob Knight versus IU fans that didn't, which had fully taken hold by the mid 1990s. It just wasn't there. And that, you know, it's, it's amazing when you think about this, this time really forward another six or seven years You know, IU basketball went through about a twenty-some year period, twenty-two year period of this like solid block of of positivity. I mean, there were a couple of years that were bad, and and certainly engendered some complaints. But uh, it's just it's sad to think about how that was the way that Hoosier Nation was united around this team, and how you could just you just you felt like you had something to lean on with the program, and that has just eroded you know, I I was, I was, I I do these things where I think about the timing of these games and where they sit in history. And it's like, this game was, uh, 17 years after, you know, 17 years away from 1970 and it's 30, what, how many years back in time now from where we are now? Like it's, it's, uh, the, the, the passage of time and the differences in periods of time really strike home how far away this actually was. And that, that's probably what's aged the worst for me, Jared. So there you go. Yeah. So,
0: yeah, let, let's talk about some things that age the worst. I'll tell you the first thing that has aged the worst, and it's actually from this show earlier on, the little joke that I made about Ricky Calloway. I forgot. He was only a sophomore. So he came back and played the next year, which I always forget about. For some reason, I always think Rick Calloway left after this year. He played one more year before leaving for Kansas. So that that little cuz it is it's interesting at the end of the game you see him he's so happy and then you you kind of think about man he doesn't end his career as a Hoosier, you know? So I just wanted to and clear that up cuz I made a mistake it, earlier.
2: It's one of the it's a, it's one of the sadder things. Like as much potential as he showed his first two years and then he only he doesn't even start 20 games his junior year and then he's gone. And then he goes to Kansas and doesn't really perform particularly great at Kansas. He was okay, but you know, he got I me mean, 13 points a game. Uh, but he wasn't like a star or anything like that. That was, I think, Roy Williams' first team at Kansas. That was the team that was on probation. Uh, or the second team that was on probation because they had the year before that. But, yeah, I mean, it is a big what-if uh, if Ricky Calloway is on that 89 team that's got yeah. Jay Edwards and and has got <laughs> Joe Hillman as a senior. I mean, it's – Yeah. Um, and it's And it's also sad because – you know, you, Ricky Calloway, he's a key player in the season on the brink year. He's a key player here. He's essentially the reason they win in the LSU game. He, he plays a really good game against UNLV. And he almost got written out of the IU basketball history books because he he left on bad terms. And then he didn't have complimentary things to say about Bob Knight at the end of the two thousand or, you know, of, of the 90s when Knight got fired. And. Yeah, it's just it's it's unfortunate because he's just he's got this youthful energy, he's got this great athleticism, like everything about him is like this is the guy that's kind of the wave of the future, and it never ends up panning out.
0: Yeah, you know the other thing for me that aged the worst from this game is the announcers, and I don't know why. You know, again, I I haven't watched this game as much as you have, but I've watched it a lot, and I guess I've just never paid attention now, and so from the last time I watched it to now, I guess I'm just more in tune with the announcing and. That age, the worst for me, both, you know, the clear bias, like whether it was them buying into their own narratives or just like literally wanting Syracuse to win, like <clears throat> it just came across a lot more clear to me listening to it. And also, I, I'm not sure if this aged the best or the worst, because it was funny when Brett Musburger went on his rant about flesh peddlers <laughs> talking about Derek Coleman, which is just a great phrase to use for agents, the flesh peddlers. But like Derek Coleman, I, I was joking about that earlier. I forgot he did actually play four years in college. I thought for sure he went pro early because that guy watching him in that game looked like an NBA player playing in a college basketball game. Now he was rough around the edges, but that's a guy, if you see a guy with that, that flashes that kind of talent and has that athleticism, you're saying he's gone. Here's no way he's coming back for another year. And he probably should have played three more years in the NBA, you know? Now Obviously, he was a guy that had maturity issues, as we you know would learn later in his career. So maybe it worked out better for him. Um, but that kind of rant that they went on, that did not age well, because obviously we know what basketball has evolved to. Um, and, you know, the flesh peddlers all sh- are still there. So maybe that part aged OK.
2: Let me jump in real quick on this. Um, it's funny because this this is the era of acting like the NBA is this like undesirable entity in general when it comes to college basketball and then keep in mind we are 80s we are we are four years i think removed from nba finals games being shown on tape delay yeah like not even being shown live like well we you know dallas is getting a great rating uh, on on cbs on friday evening so we're going to tape this nba finals game we're going to show it afterwards that actually happened um but yeah, the, the whole attitude, even the halftime that, that snippet of the halftime show where they've got Dale Brown and Harry Edwards talking <laughs> about the evils of college basketball, you know, it's like oh the, you know, there's there's cracks in the surface, there's th- problems going on. Uh, there was this attitude among people that covered college basketball that you know this was the purest expression, of, you know, this and that. It's essentially this is blue chips, like five or six years before <laughs> blue chips happened. It's that same attitude. It's that same thing, and, yeah. and we think about it totally differently now. Partially because the NBA, I think, has demonstrated, you know, they they have a system in place that helps young basketball players mature and develop in a way that a lot of college programs don't necessarily. Um, but it is it's jarring to hear it being talked about so openly on a broadcast like yeah. you just never hear that today.
0: Yeah. Also, what did not age well is an LSU basketball coach trying to be the moral authority <laughs> of, uh, of the sport
1: that did not age well. Uh, coach. You know, announcing is interesting, I, and I, um, I'd, I'd really like to get Galen's take on that because I really think it's personal preference uh, for the viewer uh, as opposed to really what makes, you know, someone really good or not. But Packer really liked to tell people what they did wrong yeah. uh, in a lot of games. As I, as you go back and watch other games other than IU, he's always, you know, this is a mistake, This he's not subbing, he's not doing that – I I don't prefer that personally, um, but today sometimes the color commentaries are so far uh, connected to coaches that it becomes a love fest too. That these these coaches can't do uh, anything wrong, and I'm probably guilty of that on this show more more than anyone. But <laughs> with, with Archie, but um, I do prefer some of the stuff that we hear today. Maybe it's just because it's better. Uh, but I would never was a Billy, Billy Packer fan for a long time, but I think he knows what he was talking about. There were a lot of comments, once I get by my bias against him, that I thought he made some decent basketball conversations or, or comments. But uh, it's interesting to me how it's shifted to more away from I'm a former coach and I'm going to tell you what needs to be done to now I'm a former coach and I'm going to celebrate the games, uh, sometimes too much like Dickie V, but it it seems to be now more of a pro color commentator than an agitator um, back in the day. Is is that correct? Or am I missing something?
2: A Packer is an interesting case. I don't think he was a coach. He was a player. He might have had a little bit of coaching, but he he had been on the, the national team for, by this point, like 11 or 12 years because he was part of that three-headed uh, broadcast booth with Dick Enberg and Al right. McGuire in the 70s. And then he, he just became the number one color commentator when McGuire left all of that. I, I'll, I'll say something unpopular. I don't mind the broadcasting in this game. I know it seems biased against IU, but I think the thing to keep in mind because if you listen to the UNLV broadcast, they're not biased against IU in that game. They're actually pretty, pretty complimentary what Indiana does throughout the course of that contest. What, they, what Billy Packer in particular really likes, and this is not unique to him by any means, is athleticism. And I think that he was really enamored with the way that Syracuse's players were playing the game in this game. And it's why he's screaming the great dish thing. It's why he's constantly talking about Derek Coleman's rebounds. And these were good plays. It's just that, you know, the the the, the plays that IU was making, I, I think he had a preconceived notion that most of them were strategically oriented as a result of Bob Knight's coaching. Because if you think about the way that the game starts, it's, you know, Bob Knight as the coach versus Syracuse's collection of talent, like that's really the the entire opening narrative, and they stick with that throughout. And I, you know, so you can look at it as, as as was pretty common, frankly, with a lot of IU basketball broadcasts. The uh, you know, Knight as the head of the program was was dealt with a lot more than the individual players because the individual players. We're almost treated as superfluous, with you know, with a couple of exceptions over the course of at least the first twenty years or so of Knight's time at IU, and so I, you know, I think that certainly when you look at the way that the game went down, um, you know, Packer to me he makes a lot of really good observations, like he's calling out Syracuse's defenses. As they switch them that for almost true. every possession, that's something you never hear you right. know and 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 I think it was really necessary in this game because Syracuse is going through this weird this i i i can I've never been able to get my head wrapped around whether this was a good move by Bayheim or not because you've got all these athletes and you're switching to like a box and one or you're switching to a two three zone, and then you're switching to man to man um and they're doing it primarily to try to confuse Indiana, and I give Packer a lot of credit for taking time throughout to identify those things. And that is, as you mentioned, something that you just don't hear on broadcast today, or or if you hear them, it's done in a way where like, you're only getting a small amount of the information for whatever reason.
1: I tell you um, is interesting too, because late in the game, they were in a box and one, this is kind of going back off the announcers. And um, was it Douglas or Monroe? Whoever was on Alford left Alford and Alford on the last shot, Alford's running to the, right wing. If the ball's reversed, Alford's going to get a wide open shot. But instead, they throw it down to Thomas and then Douglas takes back off to find Alford and Trish is in that box, which is on that right elbow. He's not sure where to go and that half step allowed Smart to catch and then drift towards the baseline and hit. Uh, And as a coach, you know, you're going to call a defense and the other team's going to execute and score. That doesn't mean it was a bad call there. I actually think Dayheim did a nice job of, of trying to mix things up uh at, at times but it's interesting on the end when the last 30 seconds to go box and one and that ultimately gave IU you a shot to to do that um and
2: and a shot to rebound as we mentioned yeah. like there was yeah. nobody yeah. guarding Joe Hillman there was nobody boxing out Alford there was nobody boxing out um you know Hill uh, um uh Thomas like i mean they mm. were Thomas was boxing or not Thomas um uh, Garrett was boxing out Coleman at that point. Like IU was, had put themselves in a perfect position.
0: There. Yeah, and Hillman. How, just, how about- I, I got a chance to interview Hillman for Podcast on the Brink, and he maintains if that shot had missed, he's getting the tip yeah. in. And he probably was, I mean, he's standing right there ready to get it.
1: How about and you guys will correct? I mean, there there was another game where IU benefited from the clock not stopping when the ball goes through the basket. Later, later years in in the nineties was it ninety. Well, that was Xavier. Ninety two. That was the, that was, the, that yeah, was 90, Xavier.
2: It was ninety three. It was the second round of the uh, ninety three tournament against Xavier, yeah. where they it went through four seconds ran off. Damon Bailey grabs it, then takes the full five seconds before he throws right. it in.
1: Yeah. And that's high school. That's what happens with us in high school. So we know when there's no timeouts, we just say just let it go. But that 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 rule has now changed to where this ball goes through with four seconds. Syracuse would have had four seconds in a national championship game to throw the ball, and you can get from one end to the other in four seconds on a drive. And we've seen that Tyus Edney, Danny Ainge, it sets up a whole different thing if that rule uh, is changed. So Indiana, we we know has benefited twice in NCAA tournament games, one in the early round and one in the ultimate game from that clock, um, not right. stopping. And then Syracuse was inept enough not to call, call, call that timeout. I thought that was uh, that's an interesting thing. Looking back on, on the game, Yeah, um, what might've happened.
2: That, that 93 game against Xavier was the game that led to the rule change, Right. Uh, just like earlier that year, uh the Indiana Minnesota game was the game that led to the change in the five second closely guarded uh call. Uh it's 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 funny. That's like right. IU generated a lot of of rules changes on their own through this period. It's it's fascinating.
0: The last thing that did not age well was Happy Jim Beheim from the pregame <laughs> interview, who was, you know, just seemed like a nice, you know, professor-like guy, nice and friendly. By the end of the game, what was the quote? They asked him. I don't, ever, I don't ever second. Uh, guess I don't second myself. guess myself, James. James I leave that, leave that up to you guys. guys. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> and look, I get it. He he had lost a really tough game, but you just saw you saw him go from nice Jim Beheim to the you know curmudgeonly Jim Beheim that we know today.
2: I will, I will say this: another thing that's aged poorly is making the poor losing team <laughs> yes. players. Stay sit there and watch as the other team like just sweats all over each other celebrating on the floor. I mean, just, I, you know, it's it's hard for Syracuse to be sympathetic figures in college basketball, but man, you just, you feel terrible. Like Howard Trish can't even get himself off the floor and Ronnie cycling looks like, you know, his dog just got run over. I mean, it's, it's a, just like unnecessary scenes. It's a, it's much better. Like get everybody to the locker room. Let's, let's just get them out of there as quickly
1: as we can. Yeah. And, um, in 1991, the Final Four came to Indianapolis, and um, Union Station was a big spot, hot spot for everyone to hang out. And they had a sports bar and a piano bar uh, connected there underneath. I don't know if you guys probably weren't old enough to ever go into those establishments before it ran under. But there's a piano bar, and it was a sing along and pointing. And Bayheim was front row of this piano bar. My dad and I were in the front row on the opposite side. And he was just having a good time. And then this they called him out. And one of the things at this piano bar was always, you suck, you suck, you suck. And the whole crowd just stood up and started pointing at Jim Boeheim, um, getting all over him for, for 87. They talked wow. about 87. And he waved and he thought that was pretty funny. And then about five minutes later, he paid his bill and, and got oh. out of there. But um, that's my only interaction with uh, with Jim Beheim. And it might have been a different thing if he would have won. Wow, probably would have been worse.
0: Yeah. Well, guys, let's let's try to put this into historical context because, you know, coming into this game, you know, Indiana has won two national championships under Bob Knight. You've got an undefeated season. You've got the 81 title. But, you know, Galen, as you said earlier, this third one, I mean, it's 11 in three years and it really cements Indiana as the epicenter of college basketball. Like you said, what Duke is today, this is what Indiana was then. And I was only five years old at the time, so I have no like actual active memories of this game. Um, You know, everything is just hearing people talk about it, watching it on TV and all that stuff. I came of age as an IU fan, you know, watching Jay Edwards in 89. He was my first favorite player. And then those early nineties teams. But as I came of age as an Indiana fan, you know, you, you, you grow up, you're, you're cheering for this team and you're expecting national championships. And it happened. Like I said earlier, it's happened every five or six years, and so it felt like Indiana was back on that same path with the 92-93 team, which is why you know not only was the Final Four loss in 92 and and obviously then the loss in 93 so crushing, it was like it was like wait a minute, this isn't what's supposed to happen. You know, like one of these two teams is supposed to win it because this is what happens under Indiana basketball. And you know, you it goes back to winning this title. Which is, you know, as you said, was an unlikely title given what had come, you know, the seasons before, um, and even just the construction of this roster heading into the season. And so, it's so interesting to look back on it. And obviously, you know, whenever people want to criticize IU basketball and talk about dusty banners and your last title is '87 and all that stuff, it's all true, you know. But it is. It's so interesting to look at this game in that context because in the moment. And even for the next half decade, it didn't feel like the end of something. It just felt like the logical continuation, and this is going to keep going. And to a certain extent, it did, because Indiana was still the epicenter of college basketball in 92 and 93. Like, going to games in 93, and Nick Nolte's there, and you're the number one team, and your player's the Wooden Award winner, and you're the number one seed. I mean, Indiana was still Indiana, and it wasn't until you lose, and then you don't kind of pick it up the next few seasons. But, you know, you look back on this as, you know, this was in actuality, the last moment of absolute greatness that was attained and it's it's kind of sad looking back on it you know like that especially for a fan like myself that has had so many good memories but not that memory and i think that's part of why i get some emotional sometimes watching it cuz it's like i want to have like i've had so many i've had a team on campus go to the championship game i've been so close but i haven't had that and so many of the older fans have had that you know, and so it's it's hard to watch it sometimes because it's like, can we get back there?
2: So, I do have a conscious memory of this game. I was young. I mean, I was when I went. What you, are you? Are you three years older than me? Two years older? Uh, two years older than you. So this was this was March of eighty seven. Yeah. Uh, so I was I was uh, seven years old. in yeah. Second grade. I remember, like, so my dad had just started a new job at the beginning of the tournament run. I remember. Like recording myself on the VCR, the LSU game and the UNLV game and the Duke game, because uh, my dad was in California for work training. And I remember watching this game on the television at our house in Battleground, Indiana. Um, you know, I remember, the, you know, we had been IU fans for a while, and, you know, but the you know, I, and I wasn't conscious of what had happened the previous couple of years. This was really the first year that I was fully conscious of what was going on with IU and was following them. And as I've learned more, and as I've kind of colored in the lines with reading things about IU basketball, going back and watching games, talking to people who were following, you know, it it was the last unfettered moment of greatness but it didn't feel like that was gone even in the mid to late nineties. Like it really, I mean, yeah, there were, there was some stuff fraying at the edges, but a lot of that's people talking in hindsight. Like, yeah, you know, when, when I got to, I got to college 10 years after this, my freshman year was August of 1997 was when it started. And there was still a feeling that we were just in a little trough and that the basketball program was going to come roaring back and, and be a top 10, top 15 program. Uh, Because look, if you look at the previous two or the previous three championships, there had been troughs immediately afterwards with both of those, Um, you know, 77, 78, 79. Those were not great years in IU basketball history, 82, 83, 84, 85, you know, even 86. Like it it was not uncommon, uh, you know, that that IU basketball wasn't going to be a championship winner every year, but the way that the, the program conducted itself. They were still considered a top five, top 10 program from a, you know, just the caliber of the overall program, maybe not necessarily in ranking uh, even into the late nineties. And I look at it like this. It's just any, any period of time where you've got a team that's really good for a long stretch of time in any sport with a very few exceptions. uh, It's a fleeting thing. You know, the Pittsburgh Steelers were great. In the 1970s, and then they fell off. The Dallas Cowboys, same thing, and they fell off. The 49ers have a great decade of the 80s, and they have like that one last moment of glory in the 90s, and they're still looking to get back and win a Super Bowl uh, after that. You know, it's been like you've got Duke, who's managed to to keep things going. You've got the New England Patriots, but you just you're not guaranteed any length of time where the team that you root for when they're on top is going to stay there. And yeah, yeah. it's sad to think. This was the last championship, you know, 93 was the 92. That team was, that was the last final four team under night. Yet that's still a pretty good accomplishment. Like that's a 21, yeah. 20, 20, uh, tw- two year period of time when IU basketball was the preeminent program in college basketball. And you know, what's sad is not what happened at the, in the last seven years, six years of, of the night era. The sad thing is what's happened since then yeah uh you know and and the for fact sure. that it's it's been so difficult to even think about getting back to that level for any period of time and so um i don't know i look at it and i say you know it's it's almost i'd almost rather have your experience where it was like just far enough in the past where it was like part of the dreamscape that for me is 81 or for me is 76 or anything that happened before that. But I can, I can still remember just that last moment of like absolute glory. And and that almost makes it more difficult at times. I think.
0: Coach, what about you? I mean, you were there. I don't know if you remember much of this night, but you certainly well, remember uh, the season you know, a
1: lot. I, I'll, I'll start off with, with the negative a little bit. Um, Galen, it's a little bit of a curse because every year you, you, you dream to get back to that feeling uh, because you had it. Um, it's that way, you know, I went to school, um, 85 through 89 and I got the curse of the football being really good and basketball being really good all at once. And for, and I, I don't want to call it a curse, but it, it, it just was, that's what etched in stone for me forever, Indiana athletics. Uh, and then the football program struggled and then the basketball program hasn't struggled near as much as a football program, but it's still way, um, a lot lower than what it was. And you find yourself you know, man, you just keep believing and believing and believing and then get let down. On the other hand, it's far outweighed by the positives. Um, you know, I was nine in 76 and have faint memory of that season. Um, then I was 14 in eighth grade, uh, in 81. Remember that, uh, and watching that game live. And then I was a sophomore age 20. Um, and one of the greatest, uh, weekends (laughs) besides getting married and having kids, I better throw that out there. But, um, but it, it, it was something that I'll I'll never forget. Um, you know, my dad, he, he's, you know, passed away in 2004, but he called me that night and said, tell me what it was like. Tell me what it was like. He just wanted to live through me. I said, dad, you know, after the beers wore off, it was one of the nat- most natural highs of people singing the fight song, hugging and all of that kind of stuff that, you know, we have fun of here in the lead up. But it was, everyone was just incredibly uh, happy and that's forever etched in my mind and it's never going to be taken away it's part of the reason that I drive 2 hours on a Wednesday night to go get Buffaloes and watch a baseball game uh it's it's part of the reason I'm going to retire down there uh because uh there are memories of driving down certain streets and and going past certain places of one of the best nights um sports fans that 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 I've ever had and and So it keeps me coming back. It keeps me dreaming that, that, but those positives far outweigh the stresses of, like you said, I have those memories and they're not being met. Um, and and to see it at at levels that are, are so much lower than what it was during my time is, is frustrating. And I think maybe that colors my optimism sometimes because I have been there. Uh, and I know it can be done if it was done the right way. And I'm not saying it has to be done Bobby Knight's way. I'm not one of those old-fashioned guys. But you do need to have a program, and you do need to recruit consistently to it, and you do need to have, you know, get old, stay old, all that stuff. Uh, and I, I dream I dream about it again because, fellas, I just can't tell you. You know, you can imagine in your college time what it might be like. It, it, it's just kind of hard to explain Um, but running down to that fountain and seeing 4,000 people and wall to wall people falling down and just, it, it just was an adrenaline rush. Unlike anything that I've ever, ever seen ever since athletically.
2: Yeah. Two things on that. First of all, if you folks that are watching have been on my YouTube channel and I know you all have, I actually have about an hour and a half of the post game television coverage, and there's at least a couple of helicopter shots from Channel 13 showing Showalter Fountain and Kirkwood from from above, uh, and it's it, it always looked amazing, uh, you know, from a distance. I can only imagine what it was like. I
1: made it into the fountain. That's amazing. I That's made awesome. it the fountain. I was so worried I was going to break a leg because people were falling and and the best thing was that's back when I was somewhat athletic is you know when someone hits hits part of your leg you just let the leg go and you fall instead of trying to brace yourself cuz that would have been an ACL or something but but um I I'll try to keep this PG but man there were clothes flying around there were there <laughs> there were things that this, this guy from a, this was not a warm night either No and it was snowing um and like I said you know an ugly guy like me, girl would run up and said, we won a national championship. Yes. Kiss. You know, um, yeah. Hey, I like your sweatshirt. Whoa. Okay. We'll switch. I mean, that's secondary to winning the national championship, but yeah, it was 4,000 at least strong wall to wall all the way back out to the, to the um, auditorium and you had to work your way into the fountain. And then I never made it down to Kirkwood, but I imagine that was, that was really uh, fantastic um kirkwood was insane has- just in
0: 2002 after we beat kent state it was packed uh, wall-to-wall a, bu-
1: with a buddy might have to go to the bathroom so bad i think he broke into the union to go to the bathroom <laughs> um just <laughs> it's, one of the, that's unbelievable
2: cool. one of my favorite pieces of footage from that that stuff and i didn't know it i'd never been i'd been to bloomington but i didn't have any conscious knowledge of it like i said i was seven or eight years old at the time but there's a shot from one of the television stations of people running out of Nix and onto Kirkwood, and you can, you know, it's it's shooting east down Kirkwood, and the sample gates aren't there yet, uh, because they, they they got built later on that summer. Uh, you know, people think of those as having been there forever, and they only got built in 1987. Um, uh, so they may be the curse, Jared. This might oh. be something that we need to think about. Is that the sample gates are actually the reason why IU hasn't won a championship during this time? They might need to come down. Just, 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 man. <laughs> Okay, if you oh man, I don't even I
0: don't even know what to say about that. Okay, if you made a strong argument, if you made a compelling argument, and then put that to a vote, what would the what would the vote be? If people actually believed, if if people actually believed that taking them down would return basketball to glory, what would be the percentage vote to take the sample gates down?
2: I mean, couldn't we just move (laughs) them? (laughs) Like, I mean, like put them on a different party. Look, and I say this as a person whose office. Is literally next <laughs> to the sample gates. Like I yes. walk through them to get to my office, uh but it's true, uh you know. And I, I hope they don't get taken down. They're a wonderful addition to campus.
1: I can get started in two hours. Yeah. So, <laughs> hey, I can get started in two minutes. It's not that far away. I'll wear my uh, assembly call here
2: and start. <laughs> I'm gonna get fired as a result of chipping away. Yeah, it's like you're gonna do what? Oh no, man, yeah, no, that's it's, it's worth mentioning. Yes.
0: Well, guys, this is, we've been talking for, man, almost 95 minutes. And I feel like we could probably talk for another 95. It still feels like we didn't talk enough about Steve Alford. We probably didn't talk enough about Dean Garrett. You know, there's just, there's not enough time. There were so many great performances in this game and there's so many storylines that come out of it. But that's kind of how I felt for all of these rewatches. You know, I mean, it would, it would take a long time to, to dive into it fully, but we need to close up for the evening What are your final thoughts, Uh, Galen? Why don't you go first as you reflect on this game in 87 and everything that it has meant?
2: I mean, you know, it's uh, it's funny because it's uh, all the things we've talked about already uh, in terms of what it means for IU basketball history and, you know, for my own personal history with, you know, I remember I can remember watching this game with my dad, not just live, but many times afterwards uh, this was one of our favorite games to watch together uh and he passed away about you know 11 years ago uh so i always think about that and this game is inextricably tied to hoosiers the movie for me because it was like hoosiers the movie came out that november i think that previous november october of 86 and the whole season was kind of like that movie in a college form you know, you know, Indiana was not, you know, the little school that could, Indiana had won four national titles. Indiana was, it was a top level program, but you felt like it was us against the world a lot of times with Indiana basketball and like Indiana basketball was different than everybody else. And I'm sure that was annoying as as all get out to the rest of the college basketball world, but it, it felt that way. Um, and so you know, when I look back on this, I don't just think about how this was you know, the last national championship for IU basketball, but it, uh, it really brings back those memories of feeling like you were part of an exclusive club if you were an IU basketball fan. You were part of a game that was played a certain way, recruited a certain way, coached a certain way. Um, yes, there were other ways that you could win basketball games, but uh, as annoying and, and maybe as erroneous as this might be in retrospect, it felt like the right way to do it. And, and there was a certain level of pride that you took from that. And I don't know that I necessarily feel the same way now that I did then, but that's certainly how I felt then. And that feeling still lingers uh, in the back of my brain somewhere. So that's uh, every time I watch it, that's the feeling I get. And it was no different tonight, watching it again.
0: Well said coach, your final thoughts as you reflect on this game.
1: You, you know, Galen, I, I'll, I'll second that there, there just, it was, it just was a feeling that, you know this is how you do things, and and you win consistently. And even in those down years, um, there just was a confidence in going into Assembly Hall that you're going to see a good performance. And and when it didn't happen, it was just out of the out of the normal for Indiana basketball. And and it just has struggled in the last you know few years. And so I hold on to this championship probably more than a than a lot of people, and maybe more than I should. Uh, because things change. That was 33 years ago, and it's just a new era, and, and things are different. Uh, I just still believe – and it might not be the same defense, same offense, same recruiting as when, you know, what Knight did. But I still believe in that pattern. There, There's enough in college basketball right now to show that, you know, programs that do things right – and right can be many different ways. But it's consistent – it's with good coaching. It's with everyone on board, and their their style then wins. Um, we've had just way too many ups and downs, and bad choices, in coaching and coaching, and other things like that that have really not allowed for consistency. And whether this, um, you know, coach and staff are, are, is the answer or not is yet to be seen. But I hold on to I hold on to this championship and the thought of this era for you know. Uh, 72 through 2002 uh, and when they went to the Final Four under Davis for the first time. That was a good good run, and, and I think we deserve it to have it back. Uh, I'm sure there are 300 and some other schools that believe they, they need a run at it as well. But what a fantastic game. What a fantastic run for this team. And I think it speaks volumes for Steve Alford coming from Newcastle uh, and, and being the lead for four years and finally getting one. Uh, a championship for, for him on, on his senior year, as well as all the other guys as well. So just a, a great memory, uh, one that I will take with me uh, forever, and I hope that uh, young fans like yourselves um, get to experience someday because I don't think there'll be anything better than being on Kirkwood with you guys, uh, even if I'm in a walker when it happens. Just um, set me up on a corner, And uh, but seeing you guys experience it and seeing my boys uh, who are IU fans experience it? The the young people that don't know what it's like to have consistent winning. We need that at Indiana. However, we can get it, uh, and I hope it happens sooner than later.
0: Last thing that I want to mention, you know, and we made this mistake in a couple of earlier post game shows for this rewatch series that we did with Eric Anderson, and, and we forgot to mention, you know, his unfortunate passing, and I want to mention Daryl Thomas's unfortunate passing. You know, two guys. When you're doing post game shows for teams in the 80s and in the 90s, you shouldn't be talking about, you know, players of those teams passing away. You know, same with William Gladness on the, you know, from the 2000 team. And unfortunately, that's, you know, that's one of the things that we've had to kind of reface doing these rewatches is some of these great names in IU basketball history and great guys uh, who have passed away early. And obviously, Daryl Thomas passed away in 2018. And, you know, I don't. I hope everybody caught it. I don't know if you did, you know, in my, in the banner moment intro that I did, you know, the things that I said about Daryl Thomas, I lifted those quotes directly from what Coach Knight said about Daryl Thomas after he passed. Um, You know, that, that is when Coach Knight said um, that it was the single greatest play he's ever seen a kid make, give up the ball, set the screen that got the man open for the shot that won a national championship. That is Daryl absolutely unselfish. Um, that those are Coach Knight's words, you know, and yeah, I've always, I've always been touched by that because obviously, you know, as, as we've read about and heard about, Daryl did not have the easiest time playing for Coach Knight. Um, and Daryl got a lot of tough love from Coach Knight, but it seemed like, you know, they ended up with a good relationship at the end of it. Um, you know, and that is a success story in, in Indiana basketball. Um, and it's unfortunate that he passed away. Obviously, we hope that he is resting in peace. Um, but you know, seeing him, his enthusiasm at the end of the game. One of the most fun parts for me about these games is watching the guys celebrate at the end and just, you know, Bob Knight coming out. And I, it always strikes me. It reminds me of, you know, my grandma when he comes out and says that he's just tickled. You know, I love that line <laughs> when he says that, you know, and then you see Steve and Keith with their arms around each other and just... You know, and look, there's there's always a survivorship bias with this because the team that wins the championship, you reflect on their camaraderie and the humility that they have and all of these things. And there were probably a lot of other teams that had good chemistry and good camaraderie, and only one can stand at the end. and so you kind of fill it in that, man, th- you know this must have been what drove them, and obviously that's a part of it. You're not going to win and be that good of a team if you're not humble and have chemistry and play for one another, but it's also about the talent. And that's the other thing, you know, I've, I've always thought about this team, you know, Galen, in a sense, like you said, as kind of an underdog, but then you watch this game, man, Keith Smart was an amazing athlete. Steve Alford was an incredible basketball player. Dean Garrett was a magnificent defensive player, you know, and had a magnificent offensive shot. We haven't talked about his high arcing shot that he kept getting over Ronnie Sykley, you know, and Daryl Thomas was such a good player and so relentless in this game. And Joe Hillman comes in and makes so many plays. And so that's my, you know, my final thought about this game is a team that had great humility, that had great chemistry, that had incredible leadership from Bob Knight, who knew how to get through to a guy like Daryl Thomas, who was able to steer Steve Alford through four up and down years, who was able to make a move in a game to pull Keith Smart from the depths of playing terrible to playing the best he's ever played, you know, and then all the individual talents. It all came together, and because Syracuse missed a few free throws and didn't take advantage of their opportunities, we win a national championship. And that's that's what's great about sports. It can be frustrating when you're on the other end of it, you know? And so there are many Syracuse fans who could be talking about this game now who are not, and if it had gone differently, this is a game that we wouldn't be talking about right now. But it did, and it went our way, and Key Smart made the shot. And he always makes the shot. And it makes me nervous every time I watch this game because I fear, is this going to be the time that he he misses the shot? Like it goes in, right? And it goes in every single time. And it's awesome. And it's our fifth national championship. And hopefully one of these days soon, we'll get another one and we'll all get that experience and we can hang banner number six and just keep moving on from there. So last thing I want to say, coach to you, to Galen, to Ryan, to Andy, to Chris, to Scott, to did I miss anybody? I think I got everybody who's been doing these rewatches, right? I think I've got everybody. Thanks to you guys for taking the time, you know, over the last few weeks, you know, to do this. Cause I think it's been really fun. Um, but I've gotten so many great comments from fans and listeners of this show that have really appreciated, you know, us doing these rewatches and had fun with it. And so I want to thank you guys for your time. And also want to thank everybody who has participated in these with us, because if you're not there participating, you know, We're just a bunch of old guys talking about these old games, but the fact that you've had so much fun tweeting and watching and being here for the live chat and emailing me, it has made it so meaningful, and so I'm glad that in this very strange March and April where we've had no sports and we can't even go anywhere and we're stuck at home, that at least we've had each other and that we're lucky enough to cheer for a team that has so many great games to reflect on. And you know, Galen, you've got a huge YouTube library. We could do this for many more off seasons and not run out of big games. We only did sixty percent of our national championships for crying like, out loud. So
2: we got the other two.
0: I know. So we're gonna thanks have to do to, those at some point. So
2: you artifacts, but no. And, and Jared, thanks to you. I mean, you were the one that emailed us all with the initial idea, and then we flushed it out over a week or so. But uh, you know, in a in a period of time where there's not a lot going on. And there's not uh, there's not live sports to watch certainly, and, and I think everybody was wistfully missing the NCAA tournament. I appreciate the leadership and the organization and putting this together, and, and I think it's been a lot of fun. I've had a great time with all of
0: them. Yeah, it's it's been my pleasure. It's been great. I, I have enjoyed all of it. So. Thank you everybody. We obviously at the assembly call, we will continue doing our shows every Thursday. So this is the last of the rewatches at least for a while. Although it's been so successful and we've had so much fun, we are almost surely going to do it again. I don't know if we'll do it again this off season. Let's just see how things go, but in future off seasons we definitely will. But our Thursday show will keep going. Crimson Cast is going to continue to have shows regularly, I would assume. Maybe. Maybe.
2: <laughs> So, oh well, we'll, have, we'll, have, we'll have, we've been too busy reviewing bloomington restaurants to yeah. talk about sports but <laughs> those, sure have, we'll been go, great. those have been great those have been great those have been a lot of fun but uh yeah no, we'll be back with some more stuff here soon and maybe maybe some fun surprises for people we'll maybe have, some
0: wait. fun surprises yeah. maybe some fun surprises all right everybody have a great night and we will talk to you thursday night on assembly call radio take care everybody Good stuff. Uh, We're still live, but the recording is over.
2: I wanted to make one note. I didn't get a chance to talk about this. I have just forgot about it during the podcast. But the One Shining Moment thing is interesting. I don't know if anybody's actually read the history of One Shining Moment. But um, we actually have Armin Katayan to thank for One Shining Moment because he... He got a tape of, of of the 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 thing that David Barrett had written uh, the previous year, and that ended up becoming the de- essentially what you hear in this is the demo. But the demo lasted for like seven years. Like Teddy Pendergrass didn't record his first version until 1994. And uh, it, I so don't it's, mind
0: the original. I, I really, ri- I really don't. I might prefer it actually. I, have-
2: I, I, I know I. I do prefer it. I, I mm. don't. And I get criticized for that constantly from other people that like the, the Teddy Pendergrass version. And I understand their perspective. But to me, this uh, this just sounds right. And I think the editing on this one's better because it doesn't like in, it, it's like, oh, let's show some stuff that actually happened in the games and like try to put it in some level of chronological order. Whereas I yeah. think the editing's gotten a lot more about let's find the best visual effects and things like that over the course of the last 10 years or so.
0: Yeah. People just want moments. give us moments yeah no it's great
2: it is funny there's a random shot of iu in assembly hall in this in the 87 version uh it's right after the behind the back pass from steve isle in the fairfield such a great pass it it is it's tremendous but there's there's like a brief shot of them like celebrating on the sideline of assembly hall which is funny because that did not come from the ncaa tournament that was probably from the ohio state game or something like
0: that. yeah uh, well, I look forward to watching one shining moment again next year, since we won't get this year's. Yeah, but hopefully.
2: Well, you know, we'll see. <laughs> no, this has been good though. It's uh, it's been fun, and you know, I think it's interesting because the uh, it's funny to like this is like this feels like the transition period this '87 game to like modern basketball entirely because of the three point line. Like they made a comment in the game about how. Um, you know, in a normal game, Alfred would have driven to the lane and, and uh looked for a shot there, but instead he's hanging out at the three point line. And you know, it's just uh it's weird how embryonic it looks in this one and how, how yeah. relatively two three pointers get taken in it. But uh you think about everything that happened afterwards, it's like this moment frozen in time.
0: It's also interesting watching this game. Like it felt like if it had been played today, Alfred would have taken fifteen or sixteen threes because he was not hunting them at all. He just yeah. got wide open ones in transition through the offense, but like he didn't really... Like, the one that he bricked, he kind of forced that one, but otherwise he didn't, you know? And so it kind of felt like they're in a game, in today's game, he would have gotten so many more opportunities, obviously. Um, not just because the offense would have been geared toward that, but because some of the ones he passed up that maybe were marginal looks are now shots that everybody just takes. So, man... But it's fun to see him at the three-point line for. We we four did years.
1: benefit from that rule being put in this year yeah. of the of the eighty-seven year with Alford being a senior and
0: <laughs> making like fifty-five percent of them. <laughs> I, as I
2: as I think I mentioned on the UNLV game, you know, twice in a row the NCAA institutes a three-point line in in part to try to like. um make it more fair for other teams because IU was so good at running defense in the two point in the in the uh, on two point plays. And and it happens in the Big Ten season in 83. You know, Knight famously says, you know, 10 teams in the conference, uh, nine teams voted in favor of the three point line. IU voted against it. IU then goes out and Leads the conference in three-point shooting and wins the Big Ten title, and then when they vote whether to bring it back, nine teams vote against it, and Indiana votes for it. Um, and then this year, you know, Alford hits fifty-two percent from three, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and and you know, it was just it just became such a natural extension of that team. And that I don't. Again, the team probably doesn't win the national title if the three-point line doesn't get instituted that year. It's another one of those weird coincidences that ends up working out in their favor.
1: Yep. you really do notice the difference. We were talking about this the other night about the spacing. You go back and watch those games before the three-point line, the spacing, and even these games still had some spacing issues for another two or three years. But, boy, the game has has really, really, really changed.
0: Yes, it has. All right, guys. Have a good night.
1: Good
2: stuff. Thank you you all again. Thank you, folks, in chat, and uh, we'll catch you next time.
0: See you,
1: chat mobbers. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.
3: <clears throat>
4: Sticky notes, email alerts, a string around your finger. They're just not big enough. So here's a big reminder from the California lottery The Mega Millions jackpot is over 250 million. Whew, play now. Please play responsibly. Must be 18 years or older to purchase player funding. Sticky notes, email alerts, a string around your finger. They're just not big enough. So here's a big reminder from the California Lottery. The Mega Millions jackpot is over $250 million. Whew. Play now. Please play responsibly. Must be 18 years or older to purchase Player 5.